All right, take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 6. We're coming to the end of the armor of God this morning. And really, this is, I think, a very appropriate sermon for this time of the year, being the 4th of the July weekend. This morning, as I was leaving the house, I got in trouble. My wife, as I was walking to the front door to leave, says, you're not going looking like that, are you? And I went, is there something, what's wrong? She said, it's not red, white, or blue. I don't have any red, white, or blue. I guess I need to get some. But anyway, it's fall colors. I want some cool weather, so I hope that'll help. All right. Last night I was in Granbury with a bunch of the people I worked with in San Antonio. Everybody came up, and uh, we met at, a, at the lake there at a friend of ours' house and just reminisced over our many years of working together. Literally, we worked together for 25-plus years. Uh, but after a little bit of just catching up with each other and reminiscing a little bit, we got into talking about the country in which we live in, and it wasn't the most positive a conversation, and everyone was saying the same thing. There's just something not right, something's not right, da-da-da-da. Well, as I sat and listened to everybody for a little bit, I got to think of today, what I'm going to preach on this morning, because I think this really is important today, especially within the culture in which we're living in, and it is the sword of the Spirit. And I hope it really strikes a chord with all of us today because I really think this is very important. We've talked about guarding your loins with truth, which means I need to know the truth of God's Word. I really need to make that a part of my life. The breastplate of righteousness is just practical righteousness. I am living the kind of life that God's called me to live every single day. The gospel of peace is that I know that Jesus Christ is the only answer that he has given me salvation and that he lives in me and he is my hope and he is going to come once again for me. And those three things are important and that gives us the ability then the shield of faith so that no matter what happens, especially as we've seen in the day of evil, you trust God to take care of you. I've had now about six or seven of you tell me your day of evil. They're unbelievable stories of difficulty that you have walked through, but yet how God did miraculous miracles during those moments. And I've been amazed at your faith and trust, even after the hardest of hits, that you still walk with him. But that's what happens. God's salvation is so real that no matter what happens to us in life, it never shakes who we are. And then what happens is the helmet of salvation is hope, hope critical in all of our lives, hope we're never disappointed because what God says, God always does. Now, I want to bring this into a little story in the, in the New Testament, and it's Peter that night before the crucifixion. Peter's, I, I know some of you were just at his house. I've been to his house. It's on the Lake Sea of Galilee. Probably had a boat dock in the back for his ship and everything. I mean, it was right there. He lived right on the, I really wouldn't call it a beach. It's real rocky, but that's where he was. Peter was one tough dude. He really was. Fisherman, his hands would have been callous from all the pulling of the nets and moving the boat. He's a guy that stood up always among all the disciples. And even that night when Jesus said, all of you will fall, he said, there is no way. You can count on me. I will not abandon you nor forsake you at that moment. But you know the story. You've read it many times. That there came that night as Jesus is being interrogated, and Peter has fallen not too far behind and is watching all of this, that a little servant girl came up to him, just a little girl, says a little servant girl, 
She said, you too are with Jesus and that, the Galilean. And Peter looked at that little girl and this big, I thoroughly think a big, strong, tough looking dude looked at her and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea what's who I am. Then it was a little later, another servant girl came up and says, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I don't know him. She denies him at that particular moment. He's having his evil day. Because his life's on the line where he's standing right now. They could put him in jail just and begin to process what they're doing. Jesus just as easy with him. And then finally a bystander comes up and says, you're one of them. Even the way you talk gives you away. I find that fascinating. Even the way he talked, you knew he was a follower of Christ. And Peter began to curse vehemently and to swear, I don't know the man. So my question becomes, as I'm thinking about this week and getting ready for today, why did Peter fail so miserably? I mean, that's the question I wrote down on my iPad to think about. Why did Peter fail so miserably? But after thinking through and looking at the scriptures, I've come away. He didn't fail. He didn't do real good at that particular moment, but he didn't fail. Jesus said, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Sift you like wheat. You've read that passage. You know what it's about. And so Satan comes and puts him under that gun. He's in that evil moment. And so he's not doing well. He's got shaken really bad by what's going on. But Amos uses a passage that would really go to here. And it's Amos 9.9. And it says this, Behold, I'm commanding you, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. But not a kernel will fall to the ground. So in one sense, it looks like Peter could not handle that night. But before we give him condemnation for not so well handling the night, if you ever walk through a moment like this, it will shake you to your core. And it will, you will have people going, oh, you didn't quite do, you could have done this, you could have done that. But you want to know something? Jesus told Peter before this ever happened these words. And this is why I know he didn't fail. Your faith, Peter, at that moment will not fail you. And when you return, you're going to now strengthen everybody else because of what I've done in you. During his most evil of day, it's the armor of God. Because we could go to Judas Iscariot and he collapses and commits suicide. Peter, yes, stumbles and walks away and weeps because of his denying of our Lord. But in reality, his faith was still there and he got back up. Evil days sometimes can hit each and every one of us pretty hard and almost knock us completely to our knees, but we do not fail. We get back up and we walk with him. So let's look at what our reaction should be as you have the armor of God, because this last phrase is important. It's very important in your life and in my life. So if you'll stand with me, I'm going to read in verse 10 through 17, the entire section on the armor of God, keying on verse 17, the last phrase. Here's what God's word says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, stand firm. 
Verse 14 starts, stand firm. Therefore, gird your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition, taking up the shield of faith, which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, Father, speak to us. I really think this last little bit ties it all together on how we're to live our lives on a daily basis to bring you all honor and glory in, in life. So, Father, be with us as we think through this, as we reflect on it, and place in our heart that which we need to know. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to start with this this morning by simply saying, in the Christian life, we do not fight defensive battles. I know from being a coach in football, you can have the greatest defense in the world, but if you don't have an offense, you're not going to win a game. You can shut down the other team zero, but if you don't score, you don't win the game. I think sometimes when we read the scripture, we think, especially even getting to here, that we need to really get a good defense going when these moments come. And stand firm seems to indicate that we do nothing but stand and take whatever's happening. Hit after hit, blow after blow, we stand and we take it. And I can go to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is going to say stuff like this. But I say to you, do not resist, resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also to him. Or I can go to Matthew 5.41. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go two. Or I can go to 5.44 and it says this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I will tell you, as I get into this moment, I'm in total agreement with everything he says there that we should do that. That is who we are in Christ Jesus. We don't hit back. We do extra. We go the extra mile. We always respond in love and prayer for our enemies. But know also that all this truth, if you take up a sword and fight like the world does, then you're going to lose. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I think for most people, they think that Christianity is simply this, taking those verses, that we take a beating and we keep our mouths shut. We take a beating, we keep our mouths shut. So during tough days, we just want to go into hiding. We want to back down because we don't want to cause any more trouble. And we live very uncomfortable lives at that moment because our conscience will eat us alive when we pull back and we fold underneath the pressure of those moments. Or we have the other extreme, which is this. We go into attack mode. And I know church members like this. They go into attack mode with their mouths. They go after anybody, say whatever they're saying. Well, I think both approaches are wrong. Both approaches will never bring our glory to our Father in heaven. But I just want to remind you, because I think we're more prone to being quiet and pulling back and not letting anybody know what we think or believe because we don't want to lose a friend or we don't want to make somebody mad. And so we have a tendency to do that. But you know what? You cannot win the battle taking hit after hit and not doing something. You've heard the phrase rope-a-dope made famous in 1974 of October. I was sitting at the University of Texas in Jester Dormitory with the television on when I watched that night. And what was unfolding that night was Muhammad Ali against George Foreman 
in the rumble in the jungle. Ali could come up with some of the most unique names for everything he ever did. But in that fight, I would not even get close in the ring to a George Foreman. His punch could kill you. He really hit that hard. He really injured a lot of people in fighting because of that punch. Ali did something different that night. He did what was called the rope-a-dope. He put his hands up. He did like this. He stayed in the corner, and he let that man hit him over and over and over and over. Some of you are old. You remember back that night when he did that, and that phrase became famous. If that's all he had done, he had lost. Now I'll come back later to what he did. So I want to remind you, we're not pacifists in the battle against evil. Neither are we attack dogs either. So this question pops up in my mind too as I'm getting ready to go to where I'm going with this. Have you ever wondered why the Apostle Paul got beaten up so many times in life? He got stoned. He got beat with the cat of nine tails, which I don't know if any of us could survive that today in the culture in which we live in. But at five times, 195 lashes, his back would have looked horrific from the scars. Uh, we had a guy from India one time speak at my church. I let him have the Sunday night service. After I heard him, I wish I'd have given him Sunday morning. I didn't know him very well, and I was always careful who I let get in the pulpit at Village Parkway. And then I realized I had, I couldn't even, I mean, I, I, I couldn't even measure up to this man from India. And he, he, what he did in India was stunning, and he came to America to share his story, and I was privileged to have him come to our church. But he came by my office the next day, and I was asking him questions of what he'd been through. Uh, he'd been beaten uh, three times with hockey sticks within an inch of his life. And so he, he said, Steve, and he reached in, and he pulled up his pant legs in my office and pulled his shirt up. His body was scarred everywhere. I mean, scarred everywhere. It was, it was hard to even look at. The scars were so bad on him from all the beatings he'd taken. And I said, how did you do that? I mean, I'm just an American pastor. I don't face threats like that. How do you do that? He said, you do it for the glory of God. And all three times he got beat up, he went back to where he was and preached the gospel in those places and led the little tribes and villages to Christ because of his boldness. Paul got beat up so many times because he spoke the truth. He used the sword of the Spirit. And that's what this is going to be about today. The last part of our armor is the sword. And the sword of the Spirit is for fighting. But not in the sense of what you think with our fist. No, if you fight with your fist, you're going to end up losing before it's over with. God will not honor that. But Jesus said this, don't think I came to bring peace to this world. I didn't. I came to bring a sword. But it's not the physical sword that you and I think about. It is the sword of God's Word. And that's what, if you look at verse 17, what does it say? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that this sword is what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, both joint and merit, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jeremiah, preaching during his days, said about God's Word, it's like a fire. It's like a hammer which can shatter a rock. I'm here to remind you today that the Word of God is powerful, more powerful than I think you'll ever imagine. And when we hit the tough days of life or we face a culture like we face, we're not supposed to sit back and be quiet. We're supposed to stand on these truths that we're supposed to so deeply believe in in our hearts and our soul. 
Paul was telling them uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, I've gone through a lot of difficulty. I've suffered a lot in doing what I do. But I have the word of truth. It is the power of God. It's the weapon of righteousness. The sword of the Spirit, being the word of God, works. The question is, do you believe if it works? Paul did. Others have. If you do, then you got to know something. You need to know it well. How well do you know God's word? If all you get is whoever the preacher is on Sunday up here in the pulpit, you're not going to know much. I grew up in high school. I sat in church all my life. We went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Back in the old days, that's how you did it. We had two-week vacation Bible schools. I don't know if any of us could survive that today, but they did back then. Two-week revivals twice a year. We were at church. Mom and dad were in the choir. Dad was a deacon. They were Sunday school teachers. And when I got out of high school and I went to college, I knew about this much. I could tell you a little bit of what's in the Bible. I won the sword drill in southeast Texas when I was in high school. I knew how to find it fast because it was competitive, but I really couldn't tell you what was in it. I knew how to look up the verse quick. When I got to seminary, I was so overwhelmed by what I had to learn because I didn't know nothing. Guys, the knowing of God's word is critical. You say, well, you're the preacher. We pay you to know that. Yeah, but it's more than that. We all should be there. This should be such a passion of your heart to know the truth. It's not always handled accurately. Oh, you can pull a verse out. But sometimes you're not even using the verse within the context of what it really means. You and I need to know this well. In the culture in which we live in, I think it's more critical today than it's ever been. That people need to hear truth. They're not going to get it through the media. They're not getting it through their friends. They're not going to get it much through social media. You know the truth and you need to be able to have it within your heart. And then you know how, know how to use it. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. So how you present the truth how you use the sword of the Spirit is critical. Sometimes church members are too sharp in their attacks with words as they try to stand for the truth. They're not going to listen to you if you're that way. Where they'll listen to you is when there's a gentleness in your heart. The Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath and people will hear you. Guys, during the time that we were talking about this last night among my friends, they were going back, they brought up about Sergeant Monk and what we were doing back in 2013. And one of them reminded me, Steve, what, why that worked. And Sergeant and I, he, he's a friend of the Sergeant Monk too. He said, Sergeant Monk and I have talked about that. He says, your voice on television and radio, you stayed calm, you spoke simple, you didn't get angry, you didn't attack until eventually that message got through and we were able to rescue his career. I've learned over the years how you present the truth is as critical as presenting the truth. And you and I, remember what it said of Peter a minute ago? That when he was standing among everybody while Jesus was being interrogated and they're at suddenly say, you're him. How could they tell that he might have been with them? By even the way he spoke. Your life should give evidence of the fact that you're so confident in Christ, in your salvation, that even your words demonstrate that. Did you not just sing a moment ago? I sat down while you were singing this to write it down. But did you not just sing a minute ago? I will put my trust in you and I will not be shaken. It's easy to sing it. But are you doing it? Because you and I are given the sword of the Spirit. It's used. It's the Word of God. We're supposed to be able to speak it. It's powerful. It can pierce the division of soul and spirit. You don't even know where the division of soul and spirit is, but it does. 
And it can impact people's lives. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It can shatter the hardest of hearts and bring them around. And the sword is what brings life. Peter, when he wrote 1 Peter, says, You've been born again, not of a seed which is imperishable, but that which is imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Do not underestimate this day how powerful God's Word is. Through the centuries, nobody's been able to stop it. But you and I have been given the responsibility as we put on the armor of God to be able to use this Word, and we're to be ready for it. I think sometimes when we say, okay, the sword of the Spirit, we know that's our Bible. It's kind of like what sometimes people want to do. They want to shine up their sword. Look how pretty my sword is. Or they want to put it in just right so that they're accessorized very well with their sword. But the sword is not for appearances. It's not to make you look good or to make you special. It's made for you to stand firm and speak truth. And you speak the truth not of what your insights are, but of what God's Word says. Now, let me bring you now to why I think this is important. The reason you have the sword of the Spirit is so that you will use it. How do you use the sword? I've hinted at it, but I want to add this phrase to it. The word in the Greek, the word of God, is not logos. I said this several weeks ago, but stopping now for a moment. It's the word rhema. Different word. And it means the spoken word. It is your responsibility to speak God's Word. It's my responsibility to do the best I can, stand in the pulpit, to preach to you God's Word. We all have that responsibility. It is through the spoken Word. Scripture says, faith comes from hearing. Hearing the words of Christ. Hearing the rhema of Christ. Hearing the same word used here, rhema. What does that mean? Paul said, it's through the foolishness of preaching men are saved. It's through the foolishness of speaking the truth that men come to know Christ. You and I are given the responsibility to be able to speak the truth. Paul said this using the word rhema. I was caught up in paradise and I heard inexpressible words. And so it's hard for me to describe to you what I saw when I was up in, in, the, in the third heavens. The book of Hebrews chapter 6 said, we've tasted the good rhema of God the good spoken word of God, and the power of the age to come. In Hebrews of faith, by faith we understand that the world were prepared by the rhema of God. How did he create the world? He spoke it into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. It's a spoken word, and faith comes in people's lives by hearing the word of God. Too often we want to fight our political battles and everything else with our judgments and our insights and everything else, when what's needed is it wouldn't hurt to tell them the truth of what God's Word says at that moment. And you don't always have to say the Bible says, because sometimes that means you say the Bible says they don't listen because they don't believe the Bible. I, I, I've learned I don't even ever say the Bible says. I just tell them what it says. A friend of mine who was a policeman for 40-something years in, in Houston and was going through a divorce, and I went to spend time. We're best buddies. We grew up together. We hunted together. He's the one who shot me in the back when we were in college with a shotgun, so we, we have a special relationship, and we've just gotten along well. I, I did his wedding and, and said, I was just getting even with you. I married you to the wrong girl, and it ruined your life and that kind of stuff. But on that time that his wife left him, I said, Alan, and I was, he was angry. He was bitter. 
I mean, I knew his mom and dad well. I knew his brother. I knew his sister. I mean, we, we, there in Orange, always together through high school. We were at church every Sunday. Alan, God's word says, and he, got, he started getting mad at me. He didn't want to hear anything that day. He was just angry at the world. And he, I, there was a sense I understood why he was angry. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. Quit, I, don't say the Bible. I just started saying, Alan, here's a truth I think helps. And I just tell him exactly what the word of God said. Sometimes you can say that. But the key is you tell them the truth. Don't just say, oh, I believe the Bible. Tell them what it says. They need to hear it. There's power in that. We're to speak. When the evil day unfolds, our spoken word is not our opinion or how we view the situation. We don't speak in anger or in bitterness. If we do, we're fools. The lips of the wise, Proverbs says, spreads knowledge. You learn how to be able to do that. Now, let me give you the best example of what I've just said. I'm in Matthew 26. Jesus has been up all night long, and he has been grilled by the high priest. And it comes to this moment. Scripture says he had kept silent. It's an imperfect tense, which means he had been silent all night long. From the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane to this moment, he has not spoken. He's had lie after lie, accusation after accusation, and he just sits there. He has something he needs to accomplish, and he's going to do that, and nothing's going to stop him from doing what he's there for. But at this moment, the high priest said to him, I observe, it's a word we do not use, I am administering an oath. I'm doing this by the living God. You tell me now whether you're Christ, the Son of God. I think this next moment is one of the most stunning moments of courage and you'll ever see because he so totally trusted the Father in heaven. But he looks at high priest in the face, and here's what Jesus said to him. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, how does that fit into what we've talked about all morning? What's Jesus doing when he says that? Anybody know? He's quoting Psalms 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, 13. Almost word for word. When he spoke, Jesus spoke God's word. In the night of evil for him, he spoke the truth. We're called to do the same thing. Did he not do that in the, in the wilderness? Some of you just got back from Israel. You got to see what the wilderness looks like. It is, it is true wilderness. It's true nothing there. It's stunning how bleak it is out there. And he's been out there. And when Satan tempts him those three times, what did he do? Quotes from Deuteronomy. Quotes from Psalm. Exact quotes to Satan. And Satan left. Do not underestimate the power you and I have today is to be able to speak the truth and speak it well. It will not always be well received. And that's what we're afraid of. Jesus said that in the last days, you know, I'm not much of a, I've never have been much of a last days preacher like a lot of preachers are. My job has always been to get people ready. So if we're in the last days, good. I'm not a prophet nor the son of the prophet. So I don't always know how this go up going. But there's a lot happening right now that makes me even begin now to think that we could be entering some very interesting days. In fact, some of you have already found my Facebook posts this week of Philo, the great uh, Jewish philosopher from the first century. You read that, and it's stunning. I, I I'm researching for a book that we're working on, and it's on how do Christians handle 
if the America collapses, how are we to respond in the midst of all that? And so we're, some people are helping me, and we're researching together. And Philo went through the first century and what was going wrong. It's literally a picture of today, one right after another. And everybody that posts on my Facebook does a shot face with the emoji and making comments back. I, I mainly put it on there to see if Facebook would take it off because it's a very blatant statement that Philo makes about the culture in which we live in. We're living in different days. All my friends yesterday who I've not seen in a couple of years since I've moved up here, standing around says, Steve, something's just different today. Something's not right. Something's not good. Nobody really knows. They have their opinions. It's just not good. They have this feeling within them. But you want to know something? I don't know if we're there or not. My job is to have you ready to live today. So whatever we face today, you walk in the manner that brings God glory and honor. And then when that tough day comes, because it always comes unexpectedly, that, that you will not collapse underneath it. You may take a blow that hurts, but you will stand firm because you know something. My God is in control. Christ Jesus is real. And then speak the truth of God's Word. Jesus in Luke 21, Mark 13, Matthew 24, which are second coming sections that He does, said this, Before all things, they will lay hands on you. You'll be persecuted. You'll be delivered up to the synagogues and prisons. They'll bring you before kings and governors for my sake. He's telling the disciples mainly, but He's saying when Jerusalem collapses, you're going to be brought up, but it's also second coming when it gets to the end. But here's what Jesus said. I'm giving you an opportunity for testimony. Greatest opportunity you're ever going to have is to be able at this moment to be able to speak. And he said, I want you to make your mind up, Jesus says. You don't need to prepare to defend yourself, but make your mind up. You will speak the truth when that moment comes. People may hate you because of my name. You may be betrayed by even your closest friends. But by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And Jesus made this promise. I will give you utterance. I will give you the ability to speak truth. I will give you the ability to be able to stand up and to speak truth, and no one will be able to resist or refute what you've been speaking to. That's the promise that Jesus gives. And I will tell you that when I was on, I did Fox and Friends, I did radio all over the nation, I literally would sit in my office and I'd do L.A., at uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon during rush hour, I would talk about marriage and God's view and Christ and all of that on a secular station. I'd go to Chicago, and then I'd be in New York. I'd be in Miami. I was stunned. This went on for days. I'd get to speak. I spoke all over the nation on radio. My brother even came, called me one day from Oklahoma City. He said, what are you doing on the radio? I said, what? He says, you're on our radio up here. They're, they're talking about you, and they have you quotes and what you're saying. He said, I like what you're saying, but why are you there? He didn't even know at the moment because it happened so fast. See, one of the things I learned was as that moment, I woke up one night, middle of the night, and I, I guess I was scared. I'd never done this. It's, it's a different ball game when you do stuff like this. It's, not, it's easy to stand here in the pulpit. It's not as easy when you go out in the public and go on the, the airs. I've been interviewed by Tucker Carlson. I was interviewed by Shannon Breen, different people like that, and I would have to give that. I was on a live television show, got ambushed by public radio to make me look like a fool. I got through it, got through it okay. But at night I woke up and said, I don't know what I'm doing. Never done this. I'm just sitting there. In, I get up. I can't sleep. I'm sitting in my chair going, I need to get out of this. I can't do this. I'm going to run Sergeant Monk's career. He's my buddy. I don't, I don't know what to do. And I, I saw on a Facebook post that one of my 
deacons was up in the middle of the night. And I texted him, and we got into a conversation back and forth. And said, he put you in a position. You stand firm. You speak truth. I sat there, and I thought about it, and I prayed about it. Finally, I said, God, I, I, I don't know if I can do this, but I'll do it. And we end up, we won before it was over with. Guys, I'm sitting here to tell you today, don't be ashamed of who Jesus is. Don't be ashamed of the truths of God's Word. Your family and your friends need you to stand firm in this time. We're in the 247th year of our nation. 247 years. We're still young, but there's struggles going on. We were built on some really good principles. We've never been a perfect nation, but I know that God's Word works. I know that Christ is real, and you and I have been called to be salt and light in the communities in which we live in. And so what we've learned from the church at Ephesus is this. We're the most blessed people in all the world. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not a one of us in this place deserved that blessing because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But our God, through His mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus, raised us up, already seated us in the heavenly places, has begun to unfold the work, bringing Jews and Gentiles from all over the world together into one body, which He is building on the foundations of the prophets and the apostles Christ is a cornerstone that holds all that together. And you and I are being built into a building that when that building's finished, Christ is going to come in all of his glory. And Paul says, I'm in prison because of that, but I get to preach these unbelievable truths. I get to tell you what's going on. And I'm praying you understand this. I pray you understand the height, the depth, the breadth, and the love of Christ. I pray that sinks within your heart and you know what that's about because our God does abundantly beyond anything that we can ever ask nor think. And in chapter 4, he says, you've been now called to walk worthy. Walk in a way that demonstrates you truly believe this truth of who Christ is is real. Walk in a manner worthy with perseverance and with patience and walk through life and do what I've called you to do because we're one faith, we're one hope, we're one baptism. God has done this amazing work within us. You don't live that old life anymore. Lay it aside. You've put on a new life in Christ Jesus. So what do you do? Make your character match your walk with Christ. Get your anger under control. Speak truth. Stop lying. Stop deceiving. Get rid of bitterness and anger. God's at work in your life. Walk now in love. Walk in moral purity. Walk in a, making the most of your time. Allow the Spirit of God to fill you. Evidence will be that you will have a song in your heart, thanksgiving on your tongue, and you'll be respectful of all people you encounter. Make your family work, even in the midst of the struggles of life. Work at making family work. And then when that tough day comes, you stand firm. Why? Because we are the most blessed people in the world. We have Christ within us, and we can. And when the moment comes that you can speak, speak truth. Do it in a loving way, patience and kindness. Let God's Word bring the conviction that will come to the heart of the people who hear it. And trust that what God is doing is great. And whether we live through a good time or a bad time, whether we live through the days we've had in the past or we live like my friends in Cuba live today, that's okay. Because we have the joy of Christ. We have the promise of peace. And we can live our lives in such a way that as we gather with our family on the 4th of July, instead of maybe griping about all the political things that are going on and the craziness in the world, we sit there and go, let's celebrate today. We had an independence as a nation, but we have independence in Christ. And have a great time. That's what I intend to do. 
be at Lake Weatherford with all my kids and all my grandkids. We'll be cooking hot dogs and hamburgers and ribs. And we're going to eat till we get sick. And then we'll go swimming. <laughs> but we're going to enjoy the day. But the joy will come not so much from 247 years as a nation. The joy is going to come because I know all my family know Jesus. I know my family is with us today. And I know what's going on within their lives. That's what I'm going to celebrate. And I pray that you will also be able to celebrate the same thing. We are blessed, guys. And the very fact that we've been given the armor, it's ours. And so when we have a day like Peter had, and it may look to others like you have failed, you'll still be standing when it's over. Because God doesn't let you go. That's the part I like. My, I close with this. My hand strength is vanishing at 70. It, they, they threw me a football the other day, and it hurts my hands now when a kid just throws a regular football. And I caught it with one hand, and as I turned, I, I dropped it because my hand cramped. And I reached down and tried to pick it up, and I dropped it. And I go, what's wrong with me? And one of the kids said, you're old, coach. <laughs> so I know my hand strength's not good anymore, but his is. My God will not let me go. And he's not going to let you go either if you're in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you've given us to study your word. Lord, as we've worked our way through Ephesians, there's some great truths here to be able to help and strengthen all of us to be the kind of men and women you've called us to be. The church at Ephesus was in an unbelievably difficult culture just kind of like we live in today. And yet you did the most amazing work among those people and you blessed them beyond imagination. Father, do that with us. And as we gather with family and friends in these next day or so for celebrating the fourth, may our true celebration be that which what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. And may we enjoy our family and friends around us, but may we quietly give you thanks, praise, honor, and glory. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.